You're listening to Playback, a Variety iHeartRadio podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. This week we've got the star of Bohemian Rhapsody, Rami Malek. We talk about what it took to inhabit the role of rock star Freddie Mercury, weathering on-set tensions, and a whole lot more. So sit tight. This is Playback. I love Halloween, and I didn't go out for Halloween yesterday, really? and that's probably the first time in 10 years. Really? Yeah. You didn't feel compelled to I was just dead, dress up man. like Freddy I just, again? No. <laughs> I think there were a lot of Freddies this year. There were a lot of Freddies yeah. this year, which means we're doing something right. Um, yeah, I didn't either, but Mm-mm. you know, my kid dressed up as a character called Super Y. I don't know if you know Super Y. Mm-mm. It's on Netflix. You should get to know Super Y. What is it? Something about teaching you how to read as a, it's a superhero. I don't know. <laughs> I barely watch, but he's all about it, and okay. that, that was his costume. Okay. So maybe Freddie Mercury next year. He'll be three. I don't know. It could be interesting. It's not bad putting a mustache <laughs> on a. Is that it? That's, That's it. it. Thank you, Dan. Easy. Thanks, Dan. Thanks. Thanks again, man. I appreciate it. Good to see you. Good luck with the photos. Get you lined up here, but yeah, dude, you've been you've been busy. <clears throat> I've been I've been busy. I've gone around the world. Yeah, for the first time. Yeah, in three weeks. And are we on? Tell yeah, me we are. We're right. on now. Let's just, let's just dive in. Uh, right. We're here today with Rami Malek, the star of Bohemian Rhapsody, Freddie Mercury himself. Also, obviously, you know him from Mr. Robot on TV, and he's been busy. I was going to ask you if you have anything left to say. <laughs> at this point, I, I guess at this point, I'm trying to come up with anecdotes that no one's ever heard. So, if you ask very obscure questions, perhaps <laughs> I can give you something fresh. Yeah, where have you been? Uh, Everywhere, everywhere. all around the world. Yeah, I've been all through Europe, uh, all around the world. Went from uh, Sydney to Singapore, landed in London, and went straight into interviews there and have uh, just found my way back to Los Angeles via a few days in New York doing press there as well. Well, you know, what has the world tour sort of revealed to you about Freddie Mercury and his impact around the world in different places? Well, I mean, collectively, everyone has their own relationship with Queen, the music, yeah. and and the the front man. Yeah. Uh, he is revered by everyone uh, from every single country that I've visited, and I think you know when we set out to make this movie, uh, Graham King and Dennis O'Sullivan, uh, who had the rights with with the legendary band members of Queen. Uh, they were taking it to studios, and I don't know how many studios actually knew how, uh, just how relevant this band is globally, mm-hmm. cross-generationally. Um, the impact is massive. Everyone knows Queen, and everyone knows Freddie Mercury. Now it's time with this film to bring it to a brand new generation. Well, why do you think that would be lost on anyone? I mean, it is such a defining, like, I feel like we all know when we first heard Queen... 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think um, people just uh, did did not really anticipate uh, just how massive yeah. they are globally. Yeah. I mean, if places like I'm going to Japan uh, on November 5th. They were huge in Japan. Uh, Freddie loved Japan. He used to go over there and uh, pick up uh, all of uh, uh, the art that they had, all the kimonos he could find. He would come back with boxes full of things he collected in Japan. Roger Taylor, too. And uh, they have a, a very heavy influence over there. South America, another place they played in Rio to 250,000 people. Yeah. The largest uh, uh, audience recorded to date. That's a fact you'd find wow. out in the film. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, you know, when did you first kind of take to Queen? When, when did you first hear their music? I don't know that I realized... Uh, that it, w- it was Wayne's World that brought it to my attention. Me too. Yes. Me too. Is that exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah. what it was? We're the same age. So same yeah, age, yeah. yeah. And that's when Bohemian Rhapsody hit uh, the charts for... Again. Uh, again. Yeah. Number one. Yeah. I'm hoping this film does it <laughs> Maybe again. Maybe do it again. I think that'll be a really cool moment if uh, Billboard has Bohemian Rhapsody at number one. So yeah. I'm going to put this out there and, uh, <laughs> and let everybody know that that's my goal. Everybody go download it on iTunes. Well, also go see the movie. <laughs> see the movie. But download it so you can get the, movie, the song on the charts. Um, but I heard it, and I, it, it was arresting to me. It was halting and haunting and at the same time uplifting and whimsical and ethereal. And as a young man, I thought, wow, this is the power of what music can do, what, what I think um, you know, types of art can do. And uh, it... it, it inspired me it invigorated me and i wanted more Mm -hmm. and around the same time he passed away and that was the did you see the big wembley concert the the the, where all the bands got together the big remembering freddie deal yeah the tribute concert there's probably very very limited uh, amount of things that i would not (laughs) be i've seen everything if you guys have a chance watch george michael do his rendition of somebody to love Mm-hmm. He was a massive fan of Freddie Mercury and Queen, and he gives it his heart and soul. And if you watch, there's a documentary that uh, takes you behind the scenes. You can see, you can see David Bowie standing back and just watching George Michael and <laughs> thinking, "Wait, am I going to have to follow this guy?" That was a huge concert. I remember watching it when I was a kid. Guns N' Roses did. Uh, uh, they did Bohemian Rhapsody. They been, and they did We Will Rock You, I remember, yeah, specifically. Rock, I think, yeah. was it, did David Bowie do uh, Under Pressure with Annie Lennox? That's was exactly that the one? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can ask it's me an anything. amazing concert. And it took Elton John and Axl Rose yeah. to hit both sides of the notes for Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm-hmm. That's how great Freddie's range was. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, uh in fact, just to go back to that, mm-hmm. most of the people uh, singing that day had to alter... Uh, uh, the songs to bring them down oh, uh, really? a key, yeah, because they just couldn't go as high. Yeah, that's that's crazy. And if you think about um, uh, under pressure, David Bowie, they they went and made that song on a whim, right? Mm-hmm. They they happened to be in the same uh, city recording different albums, and uh, they found each other in one moment, crossing paths, and they came and they said, "Why don't we do a song together?" And John Deacon comes in with this bass line, this iconic. 
baseline that we know from Under Pressure now, which mm-hmm. is also stolen by Vanilla Ice. Um, no, remember, according to Vanilla, he added an extra beat, so it's not stolen. Uh, oh, is that what he did? I call him Vanilla, apparently. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they left that day after that just to go get a slice of pizza, and when they came back, John Deacon didn't, uh, he didn't remember the, the bass line, <laughs> and that song was almost lost until Roger Taylor came in and started drumming it out. Wow. And then... Uh, they, Freddie and, and David didn't want to hear each other uh, put down their, their track, so they went into separate rooms, but Freddie couldn't help it. He said, i got to top him, so whatever he <laughs> does. I think that's some of the highest notes you'll ever hear Freddie do in yeah. a song. And it is, it's, for me, one of the most powerful Queen songs. It's an amazing song. Is this part of the fun for you as an actor, to dig in this deep and investigate and become essentially like a journalist? Yeah, I mean... Yeah. Yes, it was. It was something I look forward to every night. Whether I was on uh, Mr. Robot or working on Papillon, I would, as soon as I got home, and after learning my lines for the next day of filming both projects, I would sit and watch uh, all the archival footage and. I, I was enamored with him and infatuated with Freddie, and then I started to fall in love with him, and I felt like uh, a bit of a stalker because <laughs> I just wanted more and more and more. I was looking at uh, you know people's camcorded uh, video from a concert in, ja- in Japan in the eighties, and I, I just felt like uh, I, if there was something out there that was recorded of this man, I wanted to see it. And I, then when I exhausted all the video footage, I would go to anything that was like what we were doing right now, a, a type of radio interview. Mm-hmm. And Because you could hear different sides of him. You could hear how he interacted with someone who was delivering him a tea or a, or a vodka tonic and, mm-hmm. and how um, demure he could be, how his pitch would change when he was talking to someone he liked versus if he was ready to get out of an interview. <laughs> you could hear his voice drop a few registers. He's just fascinating. And when you hear people talk about him, how he just walked into a room and that was it. I mean, the air was sucked out and you could feel exactly who this person was. And he had power and gravitas and you just wanted to know more. Yeah. Well, he's such an iconic figure. Were you uh, more nervous than excited, more excited than nervous? Were you nervous at all to take on something this gargantuan? Yeah, I mean, how could you not be? Everyone everyone has heard a Queen song, I think. If you haven't, you should. <laughs> and you have at your own relationship with this band and this man. And, um, you know, he struts on stage sometimes with a crown and a cape, and he might as well be a superhero, right? He's yeah. the closest we get to a Marvel character that is actually a human being. Yeah. So that's how I had to uh, uh, just to begin to remove the weight of it, is think he's human. Um, he is a, a, a figure that I, there's got to be a way I can connect with uh, besides this this deity, this rock god, this mm-hmm. monolith on stage. And so I, I knew I could find his humanity and that would be my way in. And I started to think, here's a guy who's struggling with his identity he's he's a foreigner i mean if he if he doesn't go to this boarding school in india from where he was born in zanzibar if it's not a british boarding school 
He ends up in London at 18, Farouk Bulsara, with a very heavy uh, Gujarati slash Indian accent. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a few things that that might have kept us from from uh, realizing the Freddie Mercury we now know. Yeah, and so I looked at this guy who was an an immigrant, a fish out of water, trying to discover his identity, and uh, you know, someone who was called Bucky as a kid, and is, is also trying to discover his sexual identity in in a time and place, and with a a religious uh, family who very much stigmatize the idea of anything being other than heterosexual. I mean, London in, in the seventies. Didn't didn't care too much for uh, anyone identifying any other way. Mm-hmm. So the fact that he has all this turmoil and frustration and struggle to understand himself, but knows there is uh, a power, a a, a voice, a uh, a charm and charisma that he wants to share. A, a defiant individual who wants to share the real self, uh, his real self with the world, Mm -hmm. he gets out there on that stage and he lets it rip. And that's what I understood from, you know, being a a young man who grew up in the city where, and I'm staring at the 405 right now, where I, I, you know, I live, grew up about, you know, (laughs) six miles down that way. And to think of being here talking about this film and uh, everything that's happening with it tomorrow it's going to open mm-hmm. and uh, I, I could tether myself to that in a certain way if yeah. that makes any yeah. sense yeah absolutely uh, you know with something like this the, the trick is not slipping into an imitation right like you, you really want to embody something real about the character and, and not just kind of mimic uh, I'm, I'm always curious when people play real characters like what you discovered about the real individual that you really wanted to bake into your performance and make sure that came across. You know, there were times when I was working on his accent, which is, it's very posh sometimes, but then a few things might slip out of it that are come from his mom or his dad who have that Indian accent. And there were times before we'd even get on camera where I would work on just doing his mother's accent with my dialect coach, William Conacher, and we would then layer on this kind of posh RP British dialect. And I would I would have him down sometimes. And in front of the camera, it wouldn't always be as good as it was off camera. And I thought, well, that's fine at a certain point because I don't want to do a perfect impersonation or imitation of him. It would have to be me. And what I realized is whatever emotion was happening for me on the day was affecting how the words were coming out. And so I, I thought at the end of the day, that's good that what that it's altered in a certain way. Um, I, like I said, I watched all the footage, but I always wanted it to be mine as much as it was his. I didn't want to lose myself in it. And people will say, well, he really did lose himself, but there's a lot of me underneath there. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing I didn't want was to be choreographed. I wanted to be spontaneous in any moment and not just on stage, but uh, whenever I walked into a room as Freddie walks in late quite often in this film, you know, I was going to make an impression and it's probably 
you know, sometimes the loudest I've ever been on, on camera. I I usually prefer very quiet, nuanced performances. But I remember Tom Hollander at one point, uh, the actor, came up to me and he goes, are you always this loud? <laughs> and I was taken aback for a second. But, well, it's Freddie Mercury. There are moments when you have to be. But it was this, it was spontane, spontaneity that I always wanted. So uh, I, I felt... It had to come from me and him. And one thing I really used as, as a guide more than anything was uh, his lyrics. I, I would look at the songs and one day I wrote them all out because I found them so informative. It was almost like a diary. He was pouring himself his heart out. And, and you know, there are times when he talks about this this profound loneliness or this, this uh, desire for love. I mean, he has... He has songs, you can see it in Somebody to Love. Can anybody find me somebody to love? He's got another song called Lily of the Valley. I am forever searching high and low, but why does everybody tell me no? Neptune of the seas, an answer for me, please. And so he has, you know, loneliness and these ethereal, whimsical, uh, kind of fairy tale notes of, of what life should be. I mean, he's got songs called Ogre Battle and March of the Black Queen. Mm. And the guy is, uh, he's a poet. I mean, yeah. he could have, I feel like if he really wanted to, he could have been a short story writer. But yeah. that's where I learned the most about him. I could ask Brian May so much. I could ask um, Roger Taylor so much. Jim Beach, Miami Beach, uh, who is now the executor of his estate. He was is the band's lawyer. I could ask Cash, uh, uh, Freddie's sister, a lot. But the diary, the uh, the songs themselves, were gave me the most insight into who he was. Were, when you first started to do this work, were you uh, was it easy to to try to find the character, or did you struggle at all? And was there a specific thing that really unlocked it for you that you came across? Oh, that's a good question. There were moments throughout where I struggled. I mean, I remember one time I was working with, uh, I was working with Polly Bennett, who's the movement coach. Uh, my movement coach on this, she ended up doing the choreography for all of us at Live Aid and through the performances. And I was working on Mr. Robot in New York and trying to, on my weekends, work solely on, on Freddie Mercury. So I got Fox to fly her out from London and... There were moments when I was just so uh, exhausted from that third season of Mr. Robot. We, uh, I remember one time I, t I said, Polly, I'm going to just grab a snack downstairs. And I came back <laughs> 30 minutes later with an apple, and I could just tell that my mind was it had been exhausted and overtaken by too much. Yeah. It, it was just too overwhelming. And... That was, wasn't just from having worked on robots, trying to encapsulate this human being that is sometimes uh, just superhuman. And it was daunting. Yeah, there were moments where I looked at myself and I said, what have you done? What <laughs> have you done? And this will be impossible. And uh, everybody, I think, just could see that it was coming. It was gradual. It was a slow burn, but things were evolving day to day. And I just had to hang in there and know that there was still time. And uh, and I was going to put this together at some point. I just had to keep reminding myself, you can do this. This is something that you've aspired to do your whole life. 
it's a, it's a daunting challenge, but you got into this business because you like challenges, and uh, and he has a story to tell that I think is is perfect for this generation who is really trying to identify who they are and not be not be labeled or criticized for being exactly the the authentic people that they want to be. Yeah, I can't imagine having gone back and forth between Robot and that character, and then Freddie Mercury. I mean, they're such completely different dispositions, headspaces, obviously. It's just, yeah. I guess that plays into the exhaustion, right? Yeah, well, it, I mean, I will say this. I mean, people can say that they are extremely different people, but there is that, that profound loneliness and yeah. sometimes alienation that they both have. I mean, Freddie could be in front of 100,000 people and go home just to a hotel room, and I've heard him talk about that. From going from hotel to hotel, and you see that in the movie as well. Yeah. When when there's a, a situation with the band, he he broaches that. He says, "Aren't you guys tired of all of this album tour, album tour, being out on the on the road all this time? No no real sense of family." Um, and uh, I think that there are elements with Elliot and Mr. Robot. Now there is also one costume in Mr. Robot that I get to wear, and about a hundred in Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> right. So that was a very different ele- uh, element. The last day of shooting on Mr. Robot on season three, uh, I was in the last scene, and everybody knew that two weeks later I was going to be on the stage uh, performing Live Aid. That was on day one, and. Sam Esmail, who uh, writes, directs, and created Mr. Robot, is a dear friend of mine. He says, "All right, give me a little, give me a little Freddy before you leave." And uh, I, I did a spin for the entire crew <laughs> and kicked up my my legs and gave him, uh, I'll, "I'll see you later, darling," with the British dialect, and everybody laughed their asses. They, they had not seen that. <laughs> they had not, <laughs> at they all, had not so. seen that out of the, the kid in the hoodie uh, for about <laughs> three or four years now. Uh, by the end of it, were you? Uh, do you feel like you finally felt at peace with what you were doing, and, and did you feel like it was something you could have kept doing? Like, did, were you relieved that it was contained to this movie, or is it like, oh, I could do this for a miniseries? I would like to, because there's such a density of information that you've come across here, and that you're trying to put into this. It seems like it could be a longer story. Yeah, it was. Uh, Graham King was approached by numerous people to turn this into a miniseries, and uh, what what I think is so special about this movie is you get to see these these misfits that that have no reason uh, of being together. This band, and it's a coming of age story, especially to see Freddie, who he is as a young man, evolve and collectively write these songs together and then piece them together and some of the best moments in this film are those visceral uh, uh, crowd concert um, scenes that just make you feel as if you're sitting in in the first three rows Mm -hmm. and I don't think you could do that quite as well as uh, on, on a smaller format but to your point, yes, I would love to drag this on, kind of the way John, Johnny Depp took this in, into four iterations of Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. I don't know how many they I think did. Five, five. Now. Yeah, maybe uh, a sixth one on the way. Yeah, maybe. But yes, there is so much of a story to tell. We had a, a finite period of time. There are so many elements I wish we could tell in, in uh, about Freddie Mercury, but ultimately, um, 
you know, this is, is it's a two-hour film that takes place from uh, 1970 to about 1985. And to be quite honest, some, some of the best biopics, I think, do do uh, just um, are are take place in in a finite period of time. I think Capote's just uh, around a few years, mm-hmm. if, if I'm correct. But of course, he was he was one of those characters, Freddie Mercury, that I didn't want to immediately dismiss as soon as we ended. In fact, we had to do a few pickup shots, and I I mean I was chomping at the bit to get mm-hmm. to uh, a few months later when we got I got to be Freddie again. Yeah. Well, I, I do not wish to dwell on the uh, director situation that's been well reported, but I'm curious about how it affected you and how difficult was it for you to keep the character in focus amid whatever disarray may have been caused on the set? Well, it was... At one point, I think it just... It, it all raised my game in a way because... There were moments I just told myself, you know, things are changing and what you can do right now is depend on yourself, push yourself to to excel even further and take on the responsibility of, of not only honoring him, Freddie, and doing him justice, but making sure that, you know, everyone around me was uh, was not going to uh, fall in, into some type of chaos or, or, or meltdown. Mm-hmm. I think I just had to pick myself up by the bootstraps and, and continue doing my job as diligently as I thought I had been. And when, you know, if you think about me and, and Mr. Robot, in uh, the first season I had multiple directors. I knew Elliot. I knew exactly what I was going to do from day one to uh, to the very end of that first season, and I I had identified that before I started. Now it's always helpful to have a director guide you to some degree, but with with this particular character, I had about it a at least a year of preparation. So um, I, I I wasn't completely jarred by the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually got a little bit of rest at, <laughs> right before right before Dex came on, mm-hmm. and uh, Dexter was just this incredible uh, infusion of energy. He's he's an actor, so he was um, came from a perspective where he could watch all the footage, and he knew exactly where we were going and what I was doing. We had. Um, Tom Siegel, who I don't think has got enough love. That he's I love s- him. One of my favorite DPs. Oh, he is an incredible DP. And I thought, if we lose our DP, then we're going to have a problem. Mm-hmm. Because uh, he had a, just a cohesive vision for how he wanted to go from you know, some handheld stuff early on to a very polished look towards the end. And, you know, ultimately, I, I think it's fairly seamless. Yeah. Well, was that whole thing something you chalk up to, you know, creative tensions or do you feel that it, there was an onset environment you want to avoid going forward? Like, what did you take ultimately from that situation? I think ultimately I just uh, I know that I have to be as prepared as <clears throat> humanly possible and but still be able to get go out there and perform spontaneously and that that anything can happen on a set as it can in life and uh you know i just just compose yourself and try to uh be the best leader you can be on set i think uh, just 
just uh, be as as elegant and dignified and and graceful as you can and collectively uh, you know uh, we had a, we had an uh, incredible cast that from day 1 uh, supported me to the nth degree and we all raised each other's games i think you go in there you never know what you're going to expect but if you come in with the right attitude you you, you can uh, overcome any obstacle yeah and I guess along similar lines, I've heard that you want to be a director yourself. You've got material you're interested in directing. So I'm also curious what you learned from this whole situation that, you know, what not to do, what to do as a director. Um, I'll talk this up to Sam Asmail, who I, uh, is someone that I've spent, you know, five years with now. We're, we're about to do the last season of Mr. Robot. And we have this brotherly relationship where we collaborate so intensely and I think uh, as a director what what I would do is uh, you know really trust you know the actors that I'm that I've chosen to work with and know how to delegate uh, everyone's job on set I mean, you pick the right art, art director you pick the right costume designer and cinematographer, costume designer, makeup artist. I said costume designer twice. Uh, <laughs> it's important on this movie. It really is important <laughs> on this movie. Um, and obviously you, you collaborate, but everyone has their job to do. And, um, you know, you, you really have to come in prepared, but allow for conversations to exist and know that everyone has the intention of uh, really putting their best foot forward. And... That's that's what I would do. I'd come in and and lead, but uh, allow everyone to do their job. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry all of that happened. I do think that your performance is outstanding, and uh, you know, even amongst those there there are those who don't like the film. Everyone still spotlights you. So, bravo on the on the performance, my friend. Thank you so much, man. I can't <clears throat> wait for people to see it. I think it's it's got something for everyone. It is. Uh, it's it'll get you exhilarated it's so it's so exciting to see how these songs were made who these guys were before uh they came to be one of the most legendary bands in rock history uh it has a sense of family but the the evolution of uh of so many things that queen is um i think they they are revolutionaries they defied stereotype and convention and they did things that uh, were ahead of their time and I think Freddie Mercury is a revolutionary spirit who was ahead of his time he'll make you laugh and he'll make you cry and ultimately I think it's a very uplifting film and I uh, hope, hope people go and check it out you got more Mr. Robot coming uh, what, else, what else is up next for you? I think I'm going to take a little bit take of some vacation. time off yeah, maybe, yeah. I think you deserve it yeah yeah. Well, everyone, check out the movie Bohemian Rhapsody. It opens tomorrow. And uh, Rami Malek, thank you for coming on the show. Really uh, appreciate it. So happy to be with you. So happy to share this. Thank you very, very much. You got it.